Father, as we again come to come to you and we come to your word, um, we ask that we would hear your voice above all the other voices that that compete for our attention. That as we reflect again on Jesus and the Gospel of John and and the path um, of, of Jesus as detailed in this gospel, Lord, that we might not just observe Christ, but we might know Him, and that in looking at what happened, we might see how he is still at work and what he is doing in us and through us. We pray that you would be glorified as we glorify the Son, that your Spirit would draw us um, ever closer to you uh, through his example, uh, through his actions, and through his ministry uh, to us as our Lord, our Savior, and the head of the church. We pray all of this in his name. So I invite you to turn to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, and um, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be approaching uh, Jerusalem in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have two more weeks. Uh, I should give you a little bit of the preaching schedule. Um, so uh, we have uh, this week, then the 6th, then the 13th, um, and then the 20th, uh, my dad will be here. He's, he's preaching. Um, and then the 27th, we begin Advent. So we're going to take a break from John. I know that you guys are, you know, really into it after 25 weeks. Um, but, uh, we're going to take a break from John for the Advent season. Um, and then we're going to come back, um, because like I mentioned in 2023, we're going to be talking about prayer. Uh, John has a number of easily the longest prayer that Jesus prays. Uh, for his disciples, but a great deal of teaching about prayer. And so we are going to be working through John. And if everything works out, which, you know, it always does with me, if everything works out, we should be, uh, get to, we should get to the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. Now we'll see how that actually pans out or not. Um, but we should be able to get, uh, line everything up and be finished with John um, shortly after Resurrection Sunday, um, and, uh, and then we'll move on to our, our, next, uh, our next series. But uh, we will be taking a break in there for Advent um, as we reflect on Christ's incarnation. But in John chapter 12, uh, chapter 11, if you remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, all right, city, the town of Bethany. Um, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And the response to that was yet again people uh, arguing with him, um, people plotting against him, and then we and now we're going to fast forward a little bit uh, to six days before the Passover. So John chapter 12 and verse one, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this anointment? Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, "Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, 
but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Um, so I want to I take a little bit of time and talk about a couple of things that are going on here. So this is a little bit, a, a little bit fragmented because uh, we want to get uh, everything that's happening and we want to look at this in comparison to the scriptures. Um, we have a moment here, six days before Passover. So, so Jesus is giving himself enough time uh, to, be able to, um, to be able to settle into the rhythm of things. Now, what's really interesting, I think, in the Gospels is when we get a line like six days, and we think that should be easy to calculate. We should be able to say, well, six days equals six days, right? Um, uh, what's curious about this is sometimes uh, the Gospel writers tell stories and they use Roman days, which begin at sunrise, and sometimes they tell the story and they use Jewish days, which begin at dusk. All right? As if daylight savings time wasn't confusing enough, we, are, we now have two different ways of counting days. Now, this is, we have a standard calendar, right? We, we think of our calendar you know, as pretty set, pretty, pretty established. You have 365 days, three years, 366 the fourth. You know, February gets an extra day to make sure everything evens out. You know, we can always go January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. No, which days have 31 days? I don't know if you guys ever learned the knuckle thing. Did you learn the knuckle thing? All right. That's the only way I can remember which months have 31 days and which don't. Um, but the, uh, uh, you know, there's a poem, you know, like 31 days half that's all I know. I don't. I see. I already got it wrong right off the bat. Um, so, 30 days half one of the months, and the others have others. You know, it's like I don't know. January, February, March, April, May, June, July. You actually see me doing that. I'm like January. You know. Um, but but this uh, this this whole this whole calendar thing in the ancient world, everybody had a different calendar. And everybody worked things a little bit differently. And, and we see that often in Scripture. Um, in the Old Testament, it happens. Sometimes you read year one of somebody's life. But, um, you know, we think of, you know, when do we think someone is one year old? Their first birthday. But in Asian societies, it's not uncommon to say that someone is one year old from the day they're born. All right? So um, old, Japanese, old Japanese calendars, people are always a year older than we think they are. All right, because because they, that's how they calculate things, and um, there's regnal years and co-regencies and all kinds of stuff, um, and they also tended to date things based on events. You know, so it's like five years before the earthquake. I'm like, well, which earthquake are you talking about? Well, you're supposed to know, right? But we don't. Um, so these days are kind of confusing, and if you read commentaries, they'll talk about all kinds of curious ways um, for all of this to work. And the reason that a lot of times this happens. Um, is because if you think about it, this statement six days before the Passover, well, Jesus was crucified on the Passover. And in John's gospel, Jesus hasn't yet entered into Jerusalem, which he does a week before he's resurrected. So if people start, it's like, okay, so the chronology, how does this work? Six days and two days and three days. And it gets even more confusing when you realize that there are parallel passages to this that said it in Mark chapter 14, set this event 
or what people think is this event, we're going to talk about this, as two days before the Passover. Ah, contradiction. The Bible is um, full of, of contradictions. That's what the critics would say. So before I get into this, let's, let's do a thing. All right, you guys want to do a thing with me? All right, let's do a thing. All right, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a look at John chapter 12, what we just read. And then I want you to look at Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 8. And I want you to tell me, are these the same event? John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, basically. And then Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 8, are they the same event? So I'll give you a minute to kind of dig into that. And then don't say your answer yet. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. All right, three through nine, 14, three through nine. So take a look at those, read those. Huh? Mark 14, three through nine, and John 12, one through eight. And compare the two and see if they're the, are they the same event? You want to add another one in, you can add Matthew 26, but you don't really need to because Matthew just copies Mark pretty much. And remember, I never just ask a yes or no question. You've got to have reasons. You know, you know the student thing, yes or no questions are a 50-50 shot, you know. Um, but my dad used to say, if you can answer yes or no, you need to tell me why you can answer yes or no. All right, you all had a chance? So are they the same event? No, why not? Say again. One anoints the feet, one anoints the head. What else? One is held at Simon the leper's house and the other is held at Lazarus' house. What else? Okay. Um, and, and that's the distinction. What's What else? One day, one is two days before Passover. One is six days before Passover. Now there's, while we're, we're doing this, there's a couple more we want to hit. Somebody can look at Mark chapter 11 and you'll tell, you'll find a different reason. All right. Mark 11 chapter one. But did anybody else have any other reasons? Janet. Okay. All right, John, John was there, all right, Mark, um, Mark was probably not there, uh, Mark was a, a young man, um, although it's possible that Mark is the son of the woman who owns the upper room, but Jed?
all right, an alabaster flask. All right, so the, the, Mark has a very specific statement about the container. And there's something else about that he says about the container. What does Mark say about... What, else did, what does Mark say happens to the container? She breaks it. She breaks it. You don't have that in John. All right. There's an important point we're, we're missing. John says Mary. Mark says a woman. A, a woman. Does anybody find Mark 11? What's the big deal about that? What happens in Mark 11? Uh, even before that, though. Mark 11, what does Jesus do in Mark 11, 1? He enters Jerusalem. He hasn't entered Jerusalem in John yet. He enters after. All right? So, so he ha- doesn't have the triumphal entry. That doesn't happen until John 12, uh, 12. All right? So now John doesn't always tell things in sequential order, but in this case he's tying it all together. So um, the critics would look at this and they say, well, Mark and John have different details to the same story. You know what my response to all that is? I'm sure glad things only ever happened to me once in my life. That the same thing never happens twice. That, you know, it is absurd to me that people go to the gospel and they say, well, here's Mark's account of this and here's John's account of this and they have different details. And I'm like, do you think you're the first person to notice that? You don't think that if the early church wanted to be this controlling power in the world, they wouldn't have lined all that up and gotten rid of all those details? Maybe, just maybe, two women anointed Jesus in this week. You go, well, that's absurd. Is it really? What has Jesus been telling his disciples was going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem? He's telling them he's going to die. He's told them repeatedly. So is it any surprise that in the way, in the, in, as they wait in the void before the storm, two separate women come to prepare Jesus? They come to anoint him with this oil. These are two different events. They're not the same event. They're two different meals. You know, and you say, well, two different meals. What are the odds of that? Yeah, what are the odds? What are the odds that Jesus might have had enough friends in Bethany to have two separate meals? What are the odds of that? All right. Um, so they're, they're clearly different narratives and they're, they're in different places in the procession. And this often happens. The, the gospel writers report very similar events that occur. Um, and, and they tell us more than anything else that they're evoking certain responses. Jesus evokes certain responses from people. Um, and I think it's important that we note that when Mark says he doesn't know, he just says a woman came. All right. John at, talking about Mary is intentionally separating that narrative from Mark's. He's intentionally telling a separate story. He's saying, look, this is an event. This was, I knew who this was. I knew what was going on. We knew where we were. Okay. Um, all right. So I, wanna, I want us to, to look in John chapter 12. That, that whole kind of thing is just kind of an exercise for us. But when we look at John 12, what I want you to do is I want you to look at the different ways that people respond to Jesus in, in the silence before the storm. Everyone knows what's going to happen when Jesus crosses that bridge 
the, the causeway into Jerusalem. Everyone knows the trouble that he's stirred up. Um, everyone knows what is coming. And, and we all have had this experience in our lives where we know something is about to happen and we respond differently to that thing. Uh, right now, I'm a week and a half away from the biggest video conference of my life, my PhD defense. It is pure, unadulterated torture. I just want to get on the phone and say, can we just do it now? Can we do it now? Now, of course, I have to take a 450-page dissertation and do a 15-minute presentation. Oh, and by the way, I have to use PowerPoint. I hate PowerPoint with an undying passion. I detest it. Now, some people use it and they love it. I despise PowerPoint. All right? I just hate the idea of it altogether. This is as complicated as my presentations get. All right? I might put a graphic or two up on the screen, but bullet lists and all those things, that's not how my brain works. Now, if we could figure out a way to hook this up to my iPad so I could just scribble, we would be, you'd first of all be really surprised at how disorganized my brain is. But secondly, I'd be happy to just noodle and stuff. I just don't like PowerPoint. But this is coming up, and it's, it's, it's Wednesday, November 9th, and every morning my head comes off the pillow with, oh, is it today? What did I forget? What do I have to address? Is my second reader going to try to bury me? Because she didn't like my presentation. Is my first reader going to defend me? Am I going to get asked a question I don't know? My personal favorite is, am I going to mispronounce a word in the language that only the three of us speak? All right. What if I say the name of Zimri Lim wrong? I'm, I can't, it's so much going on. And you know that void, that moment. I use another illustration only because, um, because last week I kind of embarrassed my wife, so I want to give a flip side to this. Um, so uh, we got married in 1999. I was 22 and she was 21, right? She had just turned 21. Um, I got my groomsmen together at my house, my apartment in Nashua, uh, two days before the wedding. And then the day before the wedding, we drove down and we stayed at a hotel in Rockland, uh, Massachusetts. We were all there. We all had our tuxedos. We had the whole thing. She's at her house. She's getting all set up, all the thing. I woke up at three o'clock in the morning, the day of our wedding. Now we got married in the afternoon, right? It was like one o'clock or two o'clock in the, I don't remember what time it was. It was in the afternoon at some point. All right, February 20th. Um, and I got up at three o'clock in the morning and I was walking the hallways of the hotel in Rockland, Massachusetts, just Just waiting. I hate waiting. I hate surprises. I hate anticipating something. I want something done. I had like hours and hours and hours and hours before the other guys even woke up because those bums weren't getting married. They were sleeping comfortably in a hotel room. I'm going crazy. Just the anticipation. And then we got to the church and she showed up like half an hour late or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. And, and there were, you know, all this stuff and there were all these people I knew. Some of them I liked, some of them I didn't. And they were all in one building and, and it was tense and, and all this stuff. I hate anticipation. I just don't like it. 
Um, I'm just not the kind of person. In the void before something that you know is going to happen, different people respond different ways. And look at the ways that they respond to this huge moment with Jesus. They know what's coming. They know what's going to happen. They're they're bracing for it. And different people respond different ways. So the first person I want to point out, um, I love that the first thing that Lazarus and Martha do is throw a party. That's their response. Let's eat. Good Baptists. That was their decision. That was what they were going to do. Let's eat. Martha is serving. What Mary does, and I'm going to come back and talk about Mary, but look at what Mary does. She brings out this pure nard. The Greek word, by the way, pistikis, um, is it comes from the word faithful or to believe. The purity, it, you can believe, you can trust it. It was pure. It, and, and Judas describes it as, as you could have sold this for 300 denarii. A denarius is one day's wage for a common worker in the Roman world. So you could have sold this for almost um, a, year's wor- a year's wage for an average person. Think about what the good you could have done with this. All right? And she takes it, and what does she do? She anoints his feet. She, she cleanses his feet. Now, this is a curious thing because it's different from what happens in Mark where the woman anoints Jesus' head. When she's anointing his head, um, that's symbolically basically declaring him as king. All right? So you anoint the head of the king. The Hebrew word Mashiach, which we get Messiah from, means anoint. All right? And so she anoints his head. But Mary anoints his feet. That's a curious thing to do. Of all of the parts of his body, right, as she's preparing him for burial, she anoints his feet. Isn't that a weird thing that she does? Why she would do that? Um, and I'll let you think about that and process that. I'm going to come back to Mary. Judas, in the void, does what? He gets frustrated. In the space, he knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. Why is she doing this with the... We could be... you know. And He's trying to think for the future, right? But he's actually greedy. John knows that in hindsight. John didn't know that at the time. They didn't know that Judas was dipping in the, in the treasury. But at the time, I mean, Judas, is, he's frustrated and he's annoyed. And, and, and eventually he's going to storm out of uh, their dinner. Um, Ju- Judas is just... He's frustrated in the void. He wants, he wants a plan. He wants to know what's going on. What about the, the crowd in, in verse 9? The crowd comes in the void. Why hasn't Jesus showed up in Jerusalem yet? They're curious. They want to see Jesus. They want to see the guy that was raised from the dead. So there's curiosity in the void. What's going to happen next? And How's this happening? See the diversity? And of course, we've got the ruling elite who have already decided to kill Jesus. Now they decide to kill Lazarus as well. Let's just put a cap on this. Uh, we were just talking about uh, Lake Mead um, before service. Tom, 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 and, and uh, John and I were talking about how Lake Mead is the water level has gone so low that they've solved six uh, unsolved uh, murders because they found cars with bodies in them in Lake Mead. As the time goes by, it's exposing all of the this stuff, right? 
And one, one, one wonders what we'd find if Boston Harbor started to go down. Um, but and look, Whitey Bulger. Um, but uh, the... Uh, but the but the reality is right. They, they've decided they're just going to double down on this. Let's let's not have Je- just have Jesus die. Let's go ahead and have Lazarus die because they're disrupting the flow of things. Everybody's responding to the void differently. But one person's response provokes all kinds of questions for me. And that's Mary. Mary's brother, Jesus had just raised Mary's brother from the dead. So why is she anointing Jesus for his burial? Think about that. The one who raised her brother from the dead she seems to understand Jesus has to die. And so she's preparing. She's she's anointing him for that moment. Isn't that a little weird? Isn't that a little, like, odd? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? I mean, if, if, if Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, why are we worried about Jesus dying? Can I share with you what, I mean, like, I, you have a choice. Um, isn't it great to know that even Jesus' disciples sometimes were inconsistent and illogical in their behavior, in their response to Jesus? That not everything they did made good sense? We have this tendency to heroify, to almost idolize or deify these people or demonize these people but you know what not everything they did made a whole lot of sense there was really no reason if you just saw your brother raised raised from the dead by this guy that you should suddenly a couple days later go yeah but he's going to die and that's going to be the end of things right i mean it, it so sometimes people just do illogical things you say well i'm not sure i see this in the text Trust me, when we get to chapter 14, we will get to the disciples doing completely illogical things. Asking questions that make no sense. Jesus says, I have to go to my father. And and Nathaniel goes, well, how are you going? Can we follow you? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? You know, like, like they, they're going to do Judas, you know, you, one, you're going to deny, or uh, uh, Peter, you're going to deny me. I would never deny you, not in a million years. They're going to do a bunch of illogical, irrational things because that's what human beings do. Can we just accept that sometimes people do things, sometimes people even methodically and with great forethought do illogical, inconsistent things. So can we just embrace the reality of our imperfection and just back up and listen to Jesus? We all do crazy things. We all blow it from time to time. We are not defined by our our imperfect responses to Christ. We are defined 
by his perfect faithfulness to us in our brokenness. It's funny too because what happens to Judas when Jesus actually gets crucified? He was frustrated and irrational, probably as frustrated and as irrational as Mary was at this moment. But then he just can't let it go. It drives him to suicide. It drives him to doing crazy things. It, think about this. Judas's frustration and his greed and everything about Judas. This isn't a sermon about Judas, but it occurs to me. Everything about Judas, that Judas does from here on out eventually will deprive the other 11 disciples of one of their closest friends. That he will be so selfish and so self-centered and so consumed first by greed and then by guilt that he will, will kill himself, sacrifice himself, and in doing so hurt the 11 men he has spent three years following Jesus with. That's Judas's response. The curious people watching for Lazarus. Oh, Lazarus raised from the dead, all that stuff. Do you think that some of them eventually evolve, eventually are involved in the mob that calls for Jesus' crucifixion? How fickle they are. I mentioned it last week, but I, I just so wonder how many of those people who were in that mob upon Jesus' resurrection, we're able to repent, come to faith in him, and become the foundation of the church. We don't know what happens with Mary, Martha, Lazarus. I, I like to think, as weird as it sounds, I like to think that Lazarus then proceeds to outlive his sisters. Um, and, and in some ways it's a tragic, but he knows where they're headed, so he's okay. You know, we don't know what happens to them after the resurrection. We don't. We don't know their story. We we don't know the story of the priests that are conspiring against them. Although we do know from the book of Acts that many of the priests come to faith in Jesus. But their their humanity is revealed in the void before the moment. Their irrational, illogical their frustrations, their mourning, their curiosity, their anger, it's all revealed in that moment. You ever wonder why Jesus doesn't, God doesn't give us everything we want when we ask for it? Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it's to reveal ourselves to ourselves. That the waiting the void before the moment is when we work through all the things that make us us and we see ourselves in the mirror so that when God does the thing he's going to do, we are all too aware of who we are. Um. Once the hoopla starts in chapter two, in verse 12, once the boulder starts rolling downhill and there is no stopping the momentum of the conspiracy against Jesus, 
There is no stopping the steady march toward the cross. Everyone will have more or less defined roles. Everyone will have lanes that they're operating in. Everyone will know where they're going and whether they're doing the right thing or not, they are going to continue on that vector through until Jesus' death. But here in the void, here in the moment, we see their humanity. We see a weeping friend who doesn't understand that the man who said, I am the resurrection and the life, was not going to stay dead. We have a frustrated, greedy disciple who wants Jesus to act and do it now or get out of the way so he can find the person that's going to. We have a curious mob waiting to see what's going to happen and when what happens doesn't line up with what they want to have happen, call for his crucifixion. We have angry, murderous, ruling elite waiting for the opportunity now not just to kill Jesus but also to kill Lazarus. And in the silence, we see them. In the void, we observe them. And maybe we get a little bit of a, a glimpse into the hearts and minds of ourselves and others around us. Is it safe to say that sometimes we act irrationally? Sometimes we act out of frustration. Sometimes we act out of curiosity. Sometimes we act out of wrath and anger and malice. We see ourselves reflected. If you haven't heard me say this, I'll say it again. Many of you have already heard me say this. When we look at the Gospels, we should identify ourselves in everyone except Jesus. Jesus is the one person in the Gospels who is absolutely perfect in every single way. All of us, we are reflected in the disciples, in the crowd, in the questions, in the doubts, in the fears. And ultimately, everything must turn our attention to the one. doesn't mean that we turn to him perfectly. doesn't turn, me, even mean that we turn to him all the time. But ultimately we turn to follow him. Can you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, we all at times we're inconsistent. We get frustrated. We get angry. We, we get lost in our curiosity. We respond in a million other ways that don't even appear in this passage in the void before you act. We are broken. We are sinful. And though you are at work in our hearts and our minds and our souls, we still stumble. We get impatient. We get irrational. We have our good days and our bad days. And sometimes the bad days outnumber the good. Lord, help us to hold on in the void. 
waiting for you to do something. Believing that you will. Struggling with ourselves. Struggling with others. But ultimately knowing that you are the resurrection and the life. We have the benefit of hindsight to look back and see the examples in Scripture. But we still are human. We still struggle. You know our struggles. Bring us through them that we might bring glory to your name. And as we observe those in struggle, may we come alongside them to journey together with them so they might also glory in his name. May all of our irrational and frustrated and guilty and curious and angry emotions fall away when we look at you. You are our Savior and Lord, the Son of God, the head of the church, the Redeemer of all who come and call upon your name, the only name given unto men in heaven and earth by which we shall be saved. And Jesus, it is for you that we persist in the void. We praise you and give glory to your name. Amen. My brothers and sisters,